this morning we are concluding a, a series that we've been in for a number of weeks that we've called How to Be Happy. And uh, in this series, we've been working our way through the New Testament book of Philippians, a book that's laced with the themes of joy, this invitation to experience and express happiness, this inner sense of gladness. And what we've seen and what we believe is that happiness is within reach, regardless of what season you may be in right now, regardless of what circumstances you may be facing, regardless of what your journey or your story may have been. We believe biblically that happiness is within reach. It doesn't mean it will be easy. It doesn't mean it it, it won't require a fight. It doesn't mean it won't require a village coming around you. It doesn't mean it won't be more challenging for some of us than for others. But regardless, happiness is within reach. And, And we've been talking about what are some of the different things Philippians would invite us to reach for in order to take a hold of happiness. And we are wrapping up that conversation this morning. Um, man, I got a little emotional earlier this, this week, and I just thought I'd, I'd share some of the circumstances that led to, uh, you know, a mildly unusual situation. Um, I got teary-eyed of all things watching the NBA draft. Like, true story! Like, I'm like, what's happening right now? Um... By the way, for those of you non-sports fans, please hang with me. And also know we have a prayer ministry and we've been praying for you, um, you know, for, uh, just to get you ready for heaven. But uh, for those of you who don't know what the NBA draft is, the NBA draft is this evening in which uh, American professional basketball, basketball teams, I guess Canada has joined us now. Um, in fact, they won the championship. But... Um, the, North American professional basketball teams, um, they select different college players or other eligible players to be a part of their teams and then pay them a ridiculous amount of money to dribble a basketball um, for a number of years. And um, so the selection happened this past Thursday. And to no one's surprise, the first pick, the number one pick, the most coveted basketball player, not yet in professional um, sports, is a kid named Zion Williamson. If you don't know anything about this kid, my word, he is a specimen. He is like a, like a basketball avenger. This kid is six foot seven. He is 285 pounds. He can jump like 40 inches off the ground. He will block your shot. He will dunk on your grandfather. This guy is a freak of nature, freight train, unlike we've seen in a very long time. And just moments after they call his name, he gets up there and he just starts crying like a baby. And I'm like, what's what's happening? And the collective sports world starts crying with him. Um, as he stood up there, could barely compose himself. And what he was trying to, to, to capture and to convey was this idea that this all seemed so surreal. Like, I knew I was going first, but this is so surreal. And the thing he kept reflecting on was how hard he's worked to get to this spot. And while the rest of us were obsessing about the lights and we're obsessing about the stage, he's talking about, and they reflected on the fact that when this kid was nine years old, He would wake up at 5 a.m. to practice, to run practice drills, um, to practice at 
five in the morning at nine years old. And I thought, man, isn't that interesting? Like all of us obsess and we love the payoff, but we often lose sight of the practice it takes to get to that spot. And the interesting thing is Paul would say the same thing about happiness. Like you all want the payoff of happiness. That's great. Are you willing to wake up early for it though? Are you willing to put in the work? Are you willing to practice? Because you may not have known this, but happiness takes practice. And so we're going to take some time this morning to talk about practice. Don't tell Alan Iverson I said that, but we're going to talk um, about practice. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. If you have a copy of the Bible, you can feel free um, to turn there. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to start reading um, around verse 8. It takes practice. Because you may have the raw materials for um, happiness, but you've got to work them over and over to get the most out of them. And here's what Paul says. Uh, In fact, we're going to start reading at verse 9, and we're going to back back up to verse 8. But here's what it says in verse 9, Philippians chapter 4. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. You want this result called happiness. You want this result called peace. Paul would say, then practice. Run the drills. Because happy takes practice. And practice makes happy. Paul says, if you've learned, you know, a truth or you've, you've heard a whisper or, or you've seen a person that looks like they're, they're taking steps to follow after Jesus, practice those kinds of things. Practice. And he's not saying do those things. He is saying do those things over and over again. The word he uses for practice is the word that could be translated exercise. It's interested in rhythm and repetition. Do this thing over and over again because you cannot expect to be spiritually sporadic and end up being a happiness superstar. It takes practice. You know this. Where else in your life can you do something every now and then and mysteriously find yourself really good at it? It doesn't work that way. Zion Williamson is a freak of nature who practiced. For many of us, I do. I think we we know uh, uh, some simple things to do like Read your Bible, but we don't do it, or we do it sporadically. Now, you don't have to read 5,000 verses a day, but five? Five every other day, maybe? Five a week? No? Paul would say, wait, you know to do it, but you don't practice what moves you towards Jesus. How high in the J-O-Y draft do you really expect to go? Now, it takes practice. You will get better at whatever you practice. By the way, I find it really interesting 
that in verse 7, Paul tells us that if you pray, God will give you his peace. Matter of fact, the kind of peace that transcends all understanding. And this peace will guard your heart and your mind. If you pray, God will give you this peace. And then two verses later in verse 9, he's saying if you practice, you will experience the God of peace with you. I'm like, which is it, Paul? Pray or practice? And Paul would say it's both. You pray to get peace, but you practice to enjoy the peace. I would dare to say that some of us have received peace. We just turn around and give it away. We've received joy upon joy. We just don't practice enough to enjoy it. And then we wonder, like, hey, hang on a second, God. I thought you said I was a freak of nature with a 500-inch vertical. Why can't I dunk? Because you're sitting on the couch. Or you are a freak of nature, but you don't practice. I have done something freak of nature-ish in the giving you peace and joy, but you just sit around and you don't do anything with it. And you end up giving it away. Okay, so, so what practices can we mine from this section of Paul's letter that we might consider implementing if we're going to see joy grow, if we're going to see ourselves get better at happiness? Because happy takes practice, and practice makes happy. What kind of things should we practice? The first thing in this section I think Paul um, teaches us is, is practice beauty. Practice beauty. And all the teenage boys said, yes, I like this church. And all the adult men said, praise the Lord. Real quiet, though. Set all your testosterone down. We're not talking about that. Here's, here's what, this is really the idea that you become what you behold. You become most like the thing you place most before your eyes. You take on the traits of whatever you take in the most. Show me what you're dwelling on, and I'll show you what kind of person you are becoming. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes... What you see is healthy. Your whole body will be full of light, full of joy, full of peace. You name it. Verse 23. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Exclamation mark. What you eat helps determine your physical health. And what you dwell on helps determine your spiritual health. So Paul would say, practice feasting on beauty. 
Be incredibly picky with your ocular diet because what you take in, you will eventually take on. You will start to look like what you look at the most. And so Paul gives us this mind sampler. Um, he, he gives us the kinds of things that he would encourage to, to, to ensure a regular part of our ocular diet, a regular part of what we are dwelling on if we long to see happiness soar in us. Verse 8, if you back up um, from where we started, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, feast on such things. Think about such things. Dwell on such things. If something is true, and and this is really the question, does it help show things as they really are? Because you can look at a lot of things and engage a lot of things that may entertain you, they may amuse you, they may distract you for a moment, but, but do they help paint an accurate picture of reality as it really is? Which is why God is so for the Bible, because nothing will give you a more clear, or more accurate picture of who you are, who God is, who the people around you are, what the world is like, than the scriptures. They will speak to you about what is really True, and Paul would say you want to be feasting on things that help paint an accurate picture of reality. Is, is, it, is it noble? And, and noble is really the question, would you be proud for the people you respect most to see it to? Ah. Uh. The word sometimes honorable is really the word of to, to, to lift up, to put up there or to put out there. Is whatever it is that you're engaging, whatever it is you're looking at, whatever it is you're dwelling on, is this something that you would be proud to put up there for Nana to see? That's the question. I have a playlist that I play when I'm sermon prepping. Um, it's this, man, a collection of just worship songs that I enjoy. Um, and, uh, man, I'll be happy to share that playlist with anybody i also have a playlist for when i'm running that was a little different that's a little different i don't know that i would necessarily be like yes all of my kids listen to this and and you know so i need to think about some of those things um but it's, it's just, it's just, it's true. There's some things which it's like, man, um, I watched that and I would recommend, oh, you've got to see that. Nana, you've got to see this. And then there are other things we watch which we're like, mm, save your heart, save your pacemaker. Nana, I would not recommend that you watch this. Um, really, that's the question. It's this measure of... Am I, am I proud to put it up there? Is it something that I want my kids to be dwelling on and the people around me that I respect the most? Is it, is it right? Right? Does it promote obeying the law? What, what law? Whatever law. Biblical law, the law of the land, the laws at your school. 
Does this thing help you to do the right thing? Does it encourage you to do the right thing? Because I can be engaging a bunch of things that are constantly blurring the lines and pushing the lines, but does it help me to do the right thing? Is it pure? And that's the WWJD question, would Jesus do it? That's pure. Would Jesus think it? Would Jesus say it? That's pure. Is is it lovely? And lovely is just the question is, is it friendly? Would the person it's talking about appreciate the way it's talking about them? Does it speak in a friendly way about people? And by the way, it's so interesting. I was just thinking about this. Like, most of our news is unfriendly. It's unlovely, biblically speaking. It is constantly dragging people through the mud. And believe it or not, Paul would have something to say even about that. Is it admirable? Same idea as lovely. Does it speak favorably of people? Or is it speaking of disparaging ways about that religious group or that gender or or that orientation or whatever the case is? Or is it... Is it admirable? And then Paul uses these two catch-all phrases. Is it excellent and praiseworthy? Would God give it a slow clap? Just when you're in doubt and you're like, I don't know, just ask the question. Would God be like... And the angels join in. We like that. Those are the kinds of things that should be most frequently included in your dwelling diet. Think about such things. Practice pondering on things like that. Putting things like that in front of your eyes and in front of your ears. Now, I'm not telling you you have to do this. I'm just saying to you, if you have any desire to see happiness soar in you, then you might want to consider changing up your ocular diet a little bit. And you know this is true, by the way. If you have ever gone on like some kind of a diet and you've gotten serious about your health and you've gotten serious about what it is that you're eating, you know one of the crazy things you start to do? You are that person who goes to the store and you're walking through the aisles and you pick something off the shelf. And before it goes in your cart, you do this. You never cared before what this thing was made about. All of a sudden, you got a little serious about your diet, and you start reading like high fructose uh, mm, and sodium carbonate, tiny piney mite. You're like, that does not sound good. I don't know if I want that in my body. All of a sudden, it starts to matter to you what you put in your body. You don't have to do it, but come on, if you want to grab rim, if you want to be in better health, it starts to matter to you. And I think Paul would say that. Listen, I'm not telling you that you can't read your thing or watch your show or listen to whatever you listen to, but might you consider picking it up and holding it against this list and saying... Mm. Is this really what I want to take in? Is this really what I want to behold and therefore become? I mean, only if you're serious, though. 
You start to become that person people look at and all of a sudden like, hey, do you want to go? And like, ah, it sounds good, but it gives me heartburn. So I may sit this one out according to this list. That's why we have to practice feasting on beauty, by the way, because you know as well as I do, uh, what's most beautiful for me is not always what's most beautiful to me. And most of us choose what's beautiful to me over what's beautiful for me, which is my problem when it comes to the diet situation. Come on. Whenever we try, like we're going to eat healthy, that's disgusting. It must be good for us because it's not good to us. But you know, eventually your tastes start to adapt and your body starts to say, give me more of that. Beauty takes practice. Again, this doesn't mean you can't read your books and watch your entertaining shows. Um, But consider that it is a diet You can't keep talking about spiritual heartburn if you won't change what you dwell on. You can't keep whining about experiencing his peace. I just don't experience his peace. God, give me peace. And God is like, I've given you peace. And you turned around and you spent it on your nightly dose of zombie shows. You can do that if you want, but just understand You are what you behold. And I wonder if for many of us, God hasn't poured his peace out on us and his joy out on us. I wonder if God hasn't said, I gave you a 60-inch vertical. I gave you a six-pack, but you're going to have to work to go find that thing. Just saying. You take on what you take in. Are you taking on joy? And if not, might you consider what you're taking in? And maybe become one of those people who's like, oh man, I love that show. And you've made your choice. Ah, Verse 10, Uh, he says, I rejoice greatly. In the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Paul is talking about money. Um, Again, in case you've missed it, Paul is, at this point in time, he is under house arrest in Rome. This dude can't go anywhere. He is chained to Roman guards 24 hours a day. His resources are limited. Um, His movement is limited. He has very little of anything. When the Philippian uh, believers, his friends, hear about this, their hearts are so deeply stirred, and they want to do something because, A, they care about Paul immensely, and they believe so deeply in his mission and what God has called 
him too. So they wanted to do something to bring some relief and to encourage him and to supply his resources. The problem is the Philippian church is one of the most impoverished churches in the entire Bible. They don't have much of anything, but that's not going to stop them from doing something. And so they start to scrounge and they start to scramble and they start to scrape and they sacrifice and they manage to pull together a financial gift of great significance for an impoverished church like them. And they not only send this financial gift to Paul, they also send a dude, Epaphroditus, to go and serve Paul to help him in his time of need, to encourage him and to help further what it is they believe God has called him to. And when Paul receives this gift, he is so overwhelmed with gratitude, which is part of why he pens this letter to them. And when he gets to this verse, he's telling them, I was so excited. Extremely happy when I got this money gift from you all. I rejoiced greatly when I received this gift from you. And I think in Paul's giddy gratitude, we learn that if we want to see joy emerge, we've got to practice generosity. Practice generosity. And a lot of people in the church said, ugh. And I sat up here and said, oh, suck it up. Generosity is so good for your soul. If you have any interest in growing in joy, generosity is so good for you to practice. Because I don't know if you knew this, but generosity makes room for joy. God wants to give you joy. I think his problem is often you won't make room. Heaven is backing a truck up. Trying to deliver some joy to you. But it can't get through because of all your stuff that is cluttering the way. And ironically enough, it's the stuff that you believe by keeping and holding on to, you will become happier and happier. But it doesn't work that way. And God would say, be generous. Because when you're generous, you're not losing. You are making room for me. You want to experience greater joy. I dare you to practice greater generosity. Wait, Kondo. I thought Paul was exceedingly happy because he received a money gift from the Philippians. Ah, I thought he was the one who was happy. Um, yep, that's, that's what I thought too, uh, mainly because it said it right there in, in the verse. Uh, where it said, I rejoice greatly in the Lord, is what Paul said. I experienced great joy. I experienced exceeding happiness on account of your generosity. That's what Paul says. Your generosity made me exceedingly happy. But there's this thing about happiness that Paul quoted Jesus as having said one time. Acts chapter 20 verse 35. You cannot afford to miss this. It says, in everything I did, I showed you by, that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. 
remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when you see the word blessed in the Bible, you've got to typically think about, oh, how extremely happy, extreme happiness to give than to receive. Woo! That's awesome. There is greater happiness for the giver than there is for the receiver. And I know you see it, but just in case, let me be clear. If Paul is saying, I was exceedingly happy when I received your gift. And the giver is always happier than the receiver. How happy are the Philippians getting ready to be? If it is more blessed to give than to receive, and Paul's saying, I was so happy because of your generosity. What do you think Jesus is saying to the Philippian church? I'll tell you exactly what Jesus is saying to the Philippian church. Beep. 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 That truck is backing up to the Philippians place. He's about to deliver exceedingly, exceeding happiness to them. Because you always end up happier as the giver than the receiver. It's a biblical principle. So when I read how happy Paul was, my thought was like, how happy must the Philippians be? If they are the source of this generosity. This is a powerful principle. You want to get happiness? Practice giving. That's why I just don't have a problem talking about money. And I think the church needs to stop whining when we talk about money. You know what the church should do? The church should be upset. Like, wait a minute. Hang on a second. You're telling me there is a happy truck from heaven that could be backing up to my house right now if I were more generous. And you didn't think this was important enough to tell us more often? That should make you mad. It's more blessed to give than to receive. That's what Paul is talking about later in verse 17 when he says this. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. What? I'm not talking to you about stuff so you give me more. I'm talking to you about stuff so God will give you more. So God would continue to fill your account with more, with more joy, with more peace, with more stuff. And with whatever more is in that heavenly truck that he loves to back up to the souls and to the hearts of the generous. And Paul means it by the way. I don't need your stuff. I just know that as you practice generosity... You provoke generosity. You become a lightning rod for heaven's generosity by virtue of the fact that you chose to give generously. When it comes to generosity, no disrespect, God's kind of petty. I will not be outgiven by anybody. I will not lose. Nope. Nope. 
No one's outgiven. No, you don't. He refuses biblically to be outgiven by anybody. That's what it means in verse 19, a very well-known verse. Look down a little bit. It says, and my God, Paul is just prophesying now over the Philippian church. He will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Paul is talking to a financially impoverished church, and he's telling them, beep, beep, all day because of your generosity. You want to invite happiness? Practice generosity. This is not a promise, by the way. Verse 19 is not a promise for the stingy saint. Come on, if you are not generous, verse 19 is not for you. We love to pull this verse and God will supply all my needs according to... No, he's not talking to you. Paul is speaking to generous people and he's prophesying and giving this incredible promise. God will make sure your needs are more than supplied and joy continues to fill your account as you practice generosity. So I'm just asking you, who do you know who's in need and your heart's been moved by it? They could use some relief. You don't have to have much. You don't have to do much by everybody else's standard. But what are you willing or able to, 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 to scrape or, or, or to, to sacrifice in order to help bring some relief to them? It won't be easy. It takes practice to break from the lie that I'm happy when I keep. When the truth is I am happier when I give. Who do you know who might be in need? By the way, I have a bone to pick. Some of you who've been going to this church for a number of years, or at least a little while, and you still don't give financially to Mission Point. Why? I don't understand this. I don't understand this at all. <laughs> and then he had a tantrum up there. I really don't. Um, now, if you don't believe in the mission of this movement that we are longing to lock arms with and partner and figure out whatever ways we can to carry the love of Jesus Christ into the places where people are hurting and people are broken, we want to do whatever we can to help the vulnerable, which is part of why we're disbanding next week. If you don't buy into the mission, then I'll say, okay, I get that. That makes sense. But if you've been here for a while and you're like, no, I believe that you guys want to show and share the love of Jesus Christ in our world and to the hurting and to the broken, but you don't give generously. I'm like, why? I love that the Philippians believed in the mission of Paul and so they sowed into a mission they believed in. That confuses me. And I'll tell you why it confuses me. Because you're obviously here. So my thought would be like, okay, so you, well, yeah, I mean, I'm there, but I don't buy into the mission. Okay. I would say to you, man, well, I hope you would give your giving to something that you believe in. 
And also, we are not a hoarding church. Like, if you ever said, like, man, we feel like there's just another church in the area that buys into the mission a little bit more, and we want this, I'd be like, go all in. Jesus will be thankful you did. But so into a mission you believe in, so into a ministry that you believe in, in one way or the other. Or if you go here and you're like, um, I just want to give towards the mission partners, and I don't want anything to go and help pay for those people who are doing all the work of doing what. Okay, fine. Give there, though. My point is there's this power in generosity and sowing where you see need and your heart breaks or where you see mission and your heart is moved i would say so there and you know what i love the most i love my wife is sitting in this service i love the most that i can say this because i don't need any of your stuff you may not know this about the Sinfukwes, but let me tell you a little bit about us Beep, beep. God has been backing that heavenly truck to our place, and we just can't understand it. There's just no explanation for it. Like we live in a house that we shouldn't live in, and we drive cars we shouldn't be able to afford ever. People in this town think we're drug dealers. And we're like, I don't know what to say to that. The only explanation is that we have believed the truth that God will not be outgiven by us, and we've taken small steps to try him in that. And God's been like, "Mm mm-mm, beep, beep. And before long, what we've found, and this is so true, is it stops even having anything to do with weight. So if we give, God will give us back. It stops being some interchanging, bartering investment into our financial security. It becomes an investment into the kingdom of God. And before long, we're like, we just enjoy giving and helping people. And there's something about that that makes room for his happiness to take over. But all I'm saying to you, is what Paul says and what the Bible says is true, and we are a testament to that. Find what moves your heart, give to it. Find what you believe in and give to it. And God will refuse to be outgiven by you, but you will also find strangely like, I think I may have been created for this. To be a giver. To be a conduit for heaven to just channel its resources through me to other people. And I find myself happier when I'm doing that. Have you ever heard people talk about like a runner's high? If you don't run, you're like, you are lying to me. You are exercising and you're in pain and you're telling me you're enjoying it somehow. Can't explain it. But somehow I feel like I'm getting closer to what I'm designed to be. Um, I don't know why I'm still on this point, but I believe it incredibly. And I dare you to practice generosity. And please hear me say, it doesn't have to be admission point, but practice it somewhere. And then please at least have, come back and tell us, like, it, it works. It really does work. Because the Bible is true on this point. All right, I need to move on. He gives another practice that takes work because it's far from natural to us. And he tells us, practice contentment practice contentment which is so interesting in light of an invitation to practice generosity it's impossible to miss the theme of contentment in this passage contentment that elusive ability to say 
I could live here. Oof. I, I may not like this. This may not be ideal. If I could change a number of things, I, I probably would. This, this is not the situation I dreamed of being in when I was a little kid, but I could live here. If nothing changed, I could live here. It's the art of being okay with whatever the circumstances. A friend and I were talking about this not too long ago and how tough it is to practice contentment in a culture of affluence like ours. Affluence, by the way, I would define as the abundance of options. Do you know how hard it is to experience contentment when you have an abundance of options? It's tough, man. If I don't like it, I change the channel. If I don't like him, I swipe left. I scroll down. I keep moving. If our kids kind of agree, well, we pick three different drive throughs And I'm sure we'll find food for somebody. We have options. <laughs> you know, I was reading something really fascinating recently that there's a certain gender that I will not name that will spend a year of their lives deciding what to wear. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> a year of your life, just telling you, will be spent deciding what to wear. You want to talk about options, just saying. I don't ever have to live here. If I don't like it, I don't have to accept these circumstances. If I'm not feeling them, I have options, man. I'm moving on. I'm changing things. Do you know how hard it is to practice contentment when I have options? And Paul says in verse 11, I'm not talking about money because I'm in need. That's not why. And I just pray that this will be true about the church. And I promise you, Mission Point, I will never talk about finances because I'm personally in need. Never. And I hope that's just true. And I love what Paul says. No, for I've learned, now I wish I could say this next part, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I've learned the art of being good with this option. Which option? Whichever one, whatever. Verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, been there. I know what it is to have plenty, been there. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, whether I have money in the bank or I'm broke, I'm good. I've learned that, content. Whether I'm single or married, I could live here. Content. Tiny apartment, big mansion, I'm good. Popular or unnoticed, I'm good. Three followers or 3,000 likes, I am good in either regard. I've learned to be good whatever the circumstances. My contentment is not subject to circumstance. For most of us, if we're honest, man, this is tough. I'm great if 
The circumstances are great. If my kids are acting right and my husband starts acting a fool, and then if my show is renewed after the college controversy or whatever else it is, and then I'm good. If my team wins, I'm good. If I get the promotion, if my boss recognizes how hard I work, if I reach my weight goal, then I'm good. But otherwise, Lord forbid, Bid they run out of my vanilla syrup at my favorite coffee store. Then my world comes falling apart. And for many of us, our contentment is subject to our circumstances. And if you change your circumstance, there goes our contentment, which by definition is not contentment. It's the art of saying, I'm okay right here and I could live right here. It's not ideal. I'm not saying I love it. This is not what I prayed for. But I could live right here. Um. Man, I'm going to share this really quickly. I was reading some, some, some research. It was really amusing. Um, the free choice paradigm. And they did an experiment where they uh, brought in a, a big group of people and they gave them six options. In this case, it was artwork. And they said, hey, rate these pieces of art from most desirable to least desirable. One is most desirable. Six is least desirable. And everybody went through and they rated the, the artwork by their preference. And then um, uh, they said to them, man... We only have option three and four. Which one do you want? We'll give it to you. And almost everybody said, I'll take option three because I liked it a little bit more than I like option four. And so they took option three and they, they, they started to head off and they said, whoa, one more thing. And they split this big group into two groups. Um, group A, they said, hey, listen, um, so turns out um, you guys, at any point in the next week or so, if you want to trade this in, we'll give you option four. Just send it to us and we'll send option four to you. Okay. And people are like, oh, awesome. They said to this group here, Hey, uh, just so you know, uh, you're stuck with option three. Take care. Ta-da. Um, they checked in with both groups a little bit later. This group that was stuck with the option loved their piece of art. Loved it. They're like, we love it. We are so happy with it. In fact, when they were asked again, they rated that number three piece of art to number one. It is actually better than all of the other pieces of art. We're enjoying it. In fact, behold it. We have displayed it in our home. And then they checked with these people. They're like, ah, ah, what should we do? Oh, we didn't know. Do we like it? Should we trade it in? I don't know. What if the other one will look better? Oh, with our furniture. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Okay, let's trade it. And so they trade like, ah, this one doesn't work as good as the other one. And they're just freaking out over which one worked better. And they never actually enjoyed what they had. Options. The lie that options is what actually breeds happiness. They did an experiment with a third group of people. They brought them in and they told them ahead of time, you have one of two options. You can go into a group in which you're going to be stuck with something. Or you can go into a group in which uh, you have the freedom to exchange it. The vast majority of people are like, duh. We want options. Do you know what that means? It means the vast majority of people chose the thing that would actually bring them less happiness because they believe if I have the option to change my circumstances, I will be happier. False. Not just biblically, but scientifically. And Paul would say, I have learned the art of being content. Not because I was forced to, but because I have practiced and I've learned the art of contentment. I found that so amusing. And I'm telling you, if generosity makes room for joy, then I'd suggest that contentment proves your readiness for it. 
If you are not content, you are not ready for happiness. You're not, if you're not okay, you are not ready for happiness. Because do you know how much happiness it will take to make you happy? I'll tell you exactly how much happiness. A little more. A little more. Can I have options? Can I, can I, can I have options? And you will find yourself never truly happy. No amount will ever be enough because you've not learned to be content. Matter of fact, I would suggest that God has poured out happiness on most of us. We just don't have the contentment with which to enjoy it. And so we have it, but we love our options. And so we want to swipe, and we want to move on, and we want to try something else, and we want to try different options, where if we would just settle... In the circumstances long enough, we would start to see that he has done some great things all along. And he's given me more beauty than I could possibly comprehend. And he's given me more joy than I knew what to do with. For many of us, we have happiness. We just don't have the contentment with which to experience it. And so we're always looking for the next thing. And we're always looking for the next option. And we're always looking for a little bit more. And happiness is just falling out of our lives. But when you learn the art of contentment, you are so ready for happiness because all of a sudden nothing is a right. Do you know how happy this group would be if they said, oh, by the way, here's an extra painting. For real? We weren't expecting that. It's no longer a right or an option. It's just a bonus. We were good with this painting. Everything else becomes and feels like a gift. Do you know how happy the person is who was good with a flip phone? You give them an iPhone 5, they're losing their minds. <laughs> wow. Where the rest of us is like, when's the next one coming out? This one's old. Who's more happy? Contentment. There is so much beauty and power in it. I have a daughter who came from Haiti not too long ago. Do you know what she begs us for every day? Ask my kids. Paper to draw on. I'm like, that's it? Yep. Like if we really want to hurt her, no paper for you today. (laughs) Why? Like paper to draw on? Like, yep. Uh, Electronics? No. Um, you want to go and swim in the pool? No. Just spaceship? No. (laughs) Just paper and a crayon. You give her paper and a crayon, she will be happy for three hours. You won't hear from her, like legitimately. And I'm like, I want more of that. (laughs) She is happier than I am. Because if you are okay with paper and a crayon, Everything else is bonus and gravy. I am telling you right now. If you are happy where you are right now, you'll be the person saying like, hey, listen, boo-boo. Like, I'm thankful you came, but I was good without you. So this relationship now is just a source of gratitude. It's not filling a desperation. 
I am grateful for it. But don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this because I needed. I'm not Renee Zellweger. You didn't complete me. I was good before you showed up. When whatever is enough, now you are ready for happiness. In fact, you may find you already had plenty of it. If you would settle down and say, I can live here. And Paul says, as a key to learning contentment, verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Jesus. I know this verse has been used, you know, like as a Superman's like telephone booth or, you know, where like I can do all things, you know, like it makes me a superhero, like it's like Thor's hammer, you know, or Popeye's spinach or whatever. Like it's a secret weapon to getting us the option we want. I can do all things through Jesus who gives me strength. This is not a verse to help you win your football game or bench press twice your body weight. I can do all things. Like, no. You're sitting on the couch, and you decided, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm going to run the triathlon tomorrow. You're going to (laughs) die. Don't blame Jesus or his word for that, dumb dumb. (laughs) Don't do that. I can do all things. You're eating habaneros. Like, um, no, that'll, that'll hurt on the way in and on the way out. That's not what this is about. Um, Paul is saying, if Jesus is with me in this circumstance, I can live here. If Jesus is with me in this situation, I can live the best version of my life right here. This is not what I asked for. This is not ideal. This is, but I can live the best version of my life. It doesn't mean I'm not going to make attempts if things are unhealthy to get into healthier places. I hope that's always I hope that doesn't mean that I'm going to stay in less than excellent places if I can take steps towards excellence. But Paul is talking about if I'm in a circumstance and Jesus is with me in that place, I can make the most of it here. I'm not waiting on you. I'm not waiting on a doctor's report. I'm not waiting on a promotion. I'm not waiting, you know, until we move to another place. I'm not waiting on the winter to come. I can do everything that truly matters right now if Jesus is with me me. Come on, don't you think it's interesting that the gospel of Jesus is thriving in places with the least options? The most Christians in any continent are on the African continent. Like, wait, do you guys even have skyscrapers? Like, yeah, we have a couple in South Africa, but other than that, no. But we are doing all things. Through Christ who's giving us strength. We don't have a bunch of options. But yet here we are thriving. The lie that maybe if I had more options and more things and I could go to a different place and have a bit. No. It's about contentment with where you are. If Jesus is with you, you are fine and you can thrive. Jesus is enough. That's a secret. And practicing contentment starts with a prayer. Jesus be enough for me here. Jesus, be enough. Before you change anything, be enough for me here, right now. Please. What a powerful prayer to pray. Which is why people are like, I'm sorry, where was Paul when he wrote this? He sounds so happy. Yeah, oh yeah, he was incarcerated. But Jesus was with him. And he had learned the secret of contentment. I can be okay here if Jesus is with me. 
That's a great prayer to pray. And then also just for some of us, just to learn contentment, just practice keeping things. Oh, man. Amazon Prime is killing your contentment. And you don't even know it. Like, oh, so I can send it back? Yeah, um, I don't like it. Send it back. Give me another option. I don't like this one either. Send it back. Give me another option. And you're so busy weighing options, you don't actually enjoy anything. You're so busy, like, well, I can take it back, right? I'm going to keep the receipt. And you're back and forth to TJ Maxx. But do you ever really, like, I really enjoy this, though. And for some of us, it's just, just practice. Like, just take a month where you say, if I buy it, I'm going to keep it. And watch, you're going to start liking things more and being happier. Right? It's the way it is. <laughs> it's the difference between marriage and going out on a date. Like, and then we went out and she was burping the alphabet. We didn't go out again. <laughs> that was it. I have options. <laughs> but you get married, she burps the alphabet, you're like, oh, let's go on a walk. You know, and you're happy. Anyway, I don't know why I, I thought of that. By the way, for the record, <laughs> my wife cannot burp the alphabet. <laughs> Just in case anyone is wondering, at least not that I know. I'll ask her later. Maybe it's a hidden talent of some sort. Um, and stay in things. Please, gosh, stop quitting every time things get challenging. Stay in something. Stay in Warsaw for a little bit. See what God does. All right, we're going to wrap this up. Verse 14, yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Verse 15, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me um, aid more than once when I was in need. I love that. Paul is saying, I didn't need you to complete me, but I'm glad you came. Thank you. In fact, because I was content, I am all the more grateful for what you all did. Verse 20, this is powerful. This is how it ends. To God, our Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters here, the Christians here, send their greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Practice testifying. Practice testifying. Practice the art of giving Jesus away. I'm just asking, if it is more blessed to give than to receive, how much room do you suppose you leave every time you share Jesus generously? Every time you testify to what he's done in your life, every time you testify to the fact that he has done everything possible for hurting and broken people to have a relationship with him. If you are generous with the gospel, can you imagine how loud the beeping sound is in your life? I love how this story ends. I believe it's in verse 22. It's powerful. Powerful. Paul says, hey, I just want to let you know that all the Christians over here, they send their greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Now, in case you didn't know, Nero was in power at the time. He hated Christianity and did everything. In fact, he was the one responsible for, for, for Paul's death. 
He wanted to extinguish Christianity any way he could, which is one of the reasons Paul was in prison because the Roman Empire incarcerated him on account of the gospel. This is so powerful. So I can imagine Paul is locked up and Satan is like, ha, 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 ha. How do you like them limited options? You can't go anywhere. Aren't you stuck, buddy? And Paul's like, ha, 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 you. I've learned the secret of contentment. And if Jesus is with me, watch out. So I'll tell you what I'm going to (laughs) do. While I'm here incarcerated under the Roman Empire, I'm going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. First with these soldiers who I'm tied to. And then I'm going to start sharing the gospel with your family, Mr. Nero. And before you know it, the very guy who's trying to extinguish Christianity is going to have people in his own family coming to faith. God just flips the script. Why? Because Paul learned the art of contentment and he learned the practice of generosity that regardless of what situation I feel stuck in, Jesus is with me. There is an option right here to talk about him with the people that I'm trying to move away from in a situation I'd have never asked for. And yet now the doctors in this hospital, they're going to hear something about who Jesus is. And my crazy boss, while I'm employed here, they're going to hear something about who Jesus is. And my cray-cray husband is going to hear some things about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. I love the power of the way this story ends. And for some of you, you are in circumstances and you've been working so hard to get out of the situation. When Jesus is like, I'm trying to break in. We're trying to do something here. If you would learn the art of contentment, I could live here. Not only live here, but the gospel could thrive because I may be chained. But the gospel never, ever is. And so Paul gives generously of Jesus. And I'm just saying, testify of Jesus in your world practice testifying and the truth is for many of us we don't talk about jesus we don't give away the most generous gift we have to give away we're too busy trying to change our circumstances or to do different options and paul would invite us you want joy in your life and you notice so much of it is about settling where you are and then learning to give people stuff give away It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so, Father, I pray that our church and the folks who are part of this church would experience so much joy, not because they're clawing for joy, but because they're reaching for you and because they are being generous with their stuff and they're being generous with the story of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you love us unconditionally. And that you are with us always. Help us to recognize that and to live out of that place. And then fill us with incredible joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.